Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Certainly glad you've tuned in. If this is your first time, we certainly hope it's not your last time. And we invite you to click on the digital connection card up above or leave a comment here in the chat of just how we might be able to pray with you. And if you have a question you'd like to ask, we'd certainly love to be able to try to answer that. But we are grateful that you found time. And if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you also. And we invite you to do the same thing, to use either the digital connection card or to leave a comment here in the chat on just how we can be of help and be of service. But again, we're grateful that we've gathered here online. I want to share with you that we had an amazing evening here uh, celebrating uh, on Tuesday, the seventh night of March of Prayer. As we think about that, I wanted to share first the uh, commercial that's been airing on our uh, Christian radio station here, Rise FM. So grateful that Angie and Scott and, and Mark Boyer, the general manager, is really trying to help just raise the awareness. I'm grateful for how Mark wrote the copy for this ad where he says, this is what it's all about. It's about worshiping our creator. It's about praying for our community. And it's about building unity in the church. Hi there, I'm Angie with Angie and Friends in the Morning. And I'm Scott from Beyond Belief. And we want you to know about something special returning to the area. The fifth annual March of Prayer is a daily community gathering that continues through Easter. Each gathering takes place in a different church throughout Richland County. The focus is to worship our Creator, pray for our community, and to build unity in the church. Again, that ad runs a number of times through the day to advertise where we will be meeting in the evening. And they met here on uh, Tuesday, March 7th, and we leaned into an understanding of baptism and communion, those elements that do build our sense of community and do help us unify through the sacred moments we celebrate as God's people. And as we celebrated that and read some scripture and sang some songs, It was an incredible evening to celebrate and share with our brothers and sisters here in the community. So grateful that we can do that. And grateful, too, for your faithfulness in praying and being part of our online community here. I want to remind you, too, that we are continuing our 40-day journey through Draw the Circle. Today would be day 19. If you've gotten off track a little bit, I would encourage you to just lean back in. Again, on our website, we're posting the daily videos, and you can go to our website and Click on the Draw the Circle Challenge there on the front page, and that'll take you to a recap page for each week. And you can watch the short videos from Pastor Mark Batterson in a way to engage the content at a whole different level. The whole point being to engage Mark's book in a very intentional way. So I hope you're doing well with that. And I would love to hear how it's going for you and what circle you've drawn, if you would be willing to share, and where you see God showing up. And we're grateful that we can walk in this season together as we are in this season of Lent. We're in the second week of our series called Circle Maker, and I'm drawing on the the writings of uh, Mark Batterson. He pastors a church in Washington, D.C. And the story that he's uh, dropped us into takes place about 100 B.C. Uh, Lots of messiness has gone on. And as we saw here in the introduction video, as Hani drew that circle, I wonder if he had a sense of feeling foolish, not quite sure why he was doing it. Because the idea of standing inside a circle and then demanding that God send rain seems to be a risky proposition, if you will. And then on top of that, to make a vow that you're not gonna leave that circle until it rains seems like an even riskier statement to make. 
And what's important to see, and the video shows this, and we're guessing that the ancient writings that we're looking at through the Legends book is that Hani didn't just draw a semicircle, he drew a full circle, which means there's no escape clause, right? It's a circle, and he's either in it or he's standing outside of it. And when he draws a circle, there really isn't any kind of expiration date. And maybe in some degree, he has got himself in this circle, and the only way out of it, if you will, if he's demanding that God show up and bless his community with rain, is for God to do exactly that. And I think for us in a modern understanding that it's when we draw prayer circles, it often looks like it's an exercise in foolishness. But one of the points that Mark makes in his book, I think is really important for us to understand today, is this idea that faith is the willingness to look foolish. Let me say that again, faith is the willingness to look foolish. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's talk about Noah, the idea of building a boat in the middle of a desert, right? Or the Israelite army, as we learned last week, as they marched around the walls of Jericho, the city six times in complete silence. Wow, that's kind of crazy, right? And then there's another story out of the Old Testament we know well about a shepherd boy named David who challenges a giant with a slingshot. Or think about, as we came out of Epiphany here just a few months ago, the idea of the wise men who were tracking a star in the sky and they weren't quite sure where it was going to lead them other than they hopefully would see the Messiah. And then our friend Peter, right, the apostle who, who gets out of the boat in the middle of the sea. And then ultimately, as we're in this season of Lent and we think about the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf by his wearing a crown of thorns, it's all those things, right? Now, think about it for a moment as we unpack that. that we know that Noah was saved from the flood. We know... As we saw last week, and we heard the story told again, that the walls did come a-tumbling down there in Jericho. We know, too, right, that David defeated Goliath. And we also know, too, that the wise men, they found their Messiah. They discovered him in a swaddling clothes in in a manger. And then, of course, Peter, he did walk on water. And then, ultimately, Jesus, because of what he accomplished on our behalf through his death and resurrection is now in heaven as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when you think about this prayer circle, when you think about drawing the circle, it does often feel as though what we're doing can be foolish. And yet the other part of that is the bigger the circle you draw, the more foolish that you're going to feel. Because if you aren't willing to step out of the boat, you know what, you'll never walk on water. And if you aren't willing to circle the city, the wall's never gonna fall down. And then finally, if you're not willing to follow that star, you'll miss out on the greatest adventure of your life. So in order to experience a miracle, you have to take a risk. And that's what I want us to see as we lean into this second week in our series. Because I want us to see first that the most difficult types of risk are the ones where you are gonna risk your reputation. Now, back to our friend Hani. We know that he already had a reputation as the story begins as a rainmaker because he was able to do that. But then his next step, as we looked at his prayer last week, he was willing to risk his reputation by praying for rain one more time. And then what happens? Well, it's really the rest of history. He took the risk and, and the payout we're still talking about here centuries later. And when we think about the stories we encounter in God's Word in the Scripture, 
we see that the greatest chapters in history always begin with this idea of risk. And the same is true with how we live our lives. So here's what I want us to see as we unpack this a little bit more, is that if we're unwilling to risk our reputation, then we'll never build the boat like Noah did, or we'll never get out of the boat like Peter did. And at the same time, we can't build God's reputation. We can't broaden the kingdom if we're not willing to risk our own. And that's when there comes a moment when you need to make the call or make the move, whatever it might be. So one of the ideas that Mark puts forward in the book, in the chapters we're looking at this week, is the idea that circle makers are risk takers. I mean, think about this. We're going to look at the story from the Old Testament about Moses, because we know Moses learned this lesson well. Basically, if you don't take the risk, you will forfeit the miracle. Now, again, we're dealing with this number 400. It's been uh, after 400 years of slavery, God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt's captivity. Basically, it's this. It's either Egypt out of the Israelites or the Israelites out of Egypt. And yet what happens here is that the Israelites, they simply want to go back to Egypt as we encounter them today here in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 11. In fact, the scripture says, the people of Israel began to complain, Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember all the fish we ate that we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic that we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. And day after day, we have nothing to eat but this manna. Manna, manna, manna. And I love Eugene Peterson's version of this in the message, where he sort of really gets to the human uh, plight, the whining, if you will, of the ancient Israelites. The Israelites remember longingly that the free fish that they ate in Egypt was something, but you know what? They didn't remember, or maybe they forgot the little fact that the food they were eating that was free was because they weren't. They were enslaved. They were in bondage. They were uh, slaves to to Egypt. And the truth is, they weren't just slaves, but they had become actually the victims of genocide. And yet, they missed the meat on the menu. Wow. I mean, that's such an incredible story, right? And I think it's just a little ironic that these Israelites were complaining about one miracle while they're in the midst of asking for another one. Really, where was their act of gratitude, right? Their capacity for complaining, one might say, was simply beyond belief. It was astounding. And we scoff at the Israelites for grumbling about a meal of manna, that was miraculously delivered to the doorsteps every day. But I think many of us, at least I know I do, I tend to do that myself. I do the same thing. I mean, think about it. The miracles that we take for granted every day that are all around us, it's very easy for us to complain. And yet, when we read uh, simply the text of Scripture or any good book, what that entails is, is literally millions of impulses that are firing across our brain synapses, billions of them probably. And yet at the same time, while we're reading or while you're sitting here listening to me share and watching me, your heart is going about the business of circulating some five quarts of blood through what I understand is more than 100,000 miles of veins and arteries and capillaries. Again, the miracle of life itself. And then I don't know about you, but if you have a hard time concentrating, it might be because we're on a planet that's traveling at 67,000 miles an hour in space, and we're spinning about 1,000 miles per hour. 
I mean, those miracles alone, again, the things that we take for granted. So let's look at the story from Numbers 11. It's about a tantrum that the Israelites are throwing over food, literally. And yet, what does God promise? It's kind of humorous, and I would encourage uh, you to go back and look at this full chapter because God ends up promising uh, meat for a month. Now, Moses is having a hard time with this because he's got all these Israelites in front of him, and he can hardly believe what God is telling him, literally, In fact, he says this, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give you meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if the flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Again, it's sort of this amazing story, and it's quite humorous, I think, in the playfulness of God, because he's like, okay, you're grumbling, you want food, I'm going to give you food. And you know what? It's going to get complicated really, really quick. In fact, when you read all of chapter 11 here in Numbers, it really is spectacular what God does. You see, for us, it can be the same thing. that You know, God comes into your life and wants you to maybe take a job that pays less. When you do that, it doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's the way God works. Because for many of us, it really is this idea of making decisions to do what we believe is the will of God, even though it doesn't, doesn't add up. Which, if you think about it, can remind us of another story from the scriptures about another food miracle, right, that happened in the same area, in the Judean wilderness, and about 1,500 years later. We have the story of the crowd of 5,000, and really it's more than that because they were only counting the men at the time, so it could have been upwards near 10,000 people. Jesus, as he is wired, doesn't want to send people away hungry. And then there's a nameless boy that the scriptures mention to us who has his brown bag, lunch, that he offers to Jesus. And it consists of five loaves and two fish. And you know what? It's a nice gesture. But it's interesting, the disciple Andrew, he says out loud what the other disciples must have been thinking. How far will these things go with so many? these five loaves and two fish. And so like the story with Moses that we shared just a few moments ago, Our friend, Brother Andrew, is uh, starting to do the math in his head, and it doesn't add up. I mean, in terms of addition, he's got, you know, five loaves and two fish, and okay, that's enough for seven. But you see, the part of the the equation that is missing is the work of the Holy Spirit and and the work of God in the midst of of the realities of life. And so what God ends up doing is uh, multiplying it so that five plus two equals uh, 5,000. And that what's really crazy is when the story's told and the people are fed, then they go around and gather up what's left. And so the 12 baskets uh, become the remainders, if you will. And if, if we were thinking about this as a math formula, it might look something like this, 5 plus 2 equals 5,000 or with a remainder of 12. So the whole point of this and what we want to see today is we think about uh, drawing circles in our lives and praying through what God is helping us to see for ourselves is that if you put what little you have in your hand into the hand of God, it won't just add up, but God will actually multiply it. And I know this is crazy, and we all shake our head going, how does this even work? At the same time, we go back to this understanding that we began with, that faith was really an act of foolishness, of act of leaning in to trusting that God's going to show up. Now, for me, one of those things where faith showed up for me is a crazy bike ride that I did to raise awareness for those people who lost their homes in Joplin and Tuscaloosa 
back in about 12 years ago. And the amazing thing that took place in their world, and yet what I was able to bring along by joining a team. And it was foolishness. It was craziness on my part. I, I didn't ride a bike up to that point very seriously and it actually set off on some 800 miles over two weeks was like the craziest thing I've ever done, which is the step of faith that we need to take. It's this act of foolishness, if you will. And so my question to you today, as we think about what Mark is encouraging us here through God's Word, to drill it down to a practical level, what is the step of faith that you need to take in pursuing your big dream? What is that? Well, here's another story. We're going to call it Quelmageddon. And what I mean by that, it's just another story that continues here out of chapter 11 in Numbers, where it says, Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as day's walk in any direction. All the day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail, and no one gathered less than ten homers. Well, that's a lot of food. The Israelites are about 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. They're also about 50 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. Now, why does that matter? Well, in the story, we need to be reminded that these little birds called quail, that they tend to live by the water. And the other thing is they don't really fly a long distance. And so what takes place here is literally what is a meteorological miracle. It wasn't just west wind. It was the fact that the clouds burst and blew these little birds all the way into where Israel could then receive them as food. Now, just to get another sense of this, the size and scope of this is a, a day's walk would have been about 15 miles in any direction. And so if, if you take that distance, 15 miles, and you square the radius, doing a little math here, and you multiply it by pi, 3.147, you get about 700 square miles. That's a lot of land. And to put that into perspective, these quail that God sends to them, it's, they're basically piled up three foot deep. They are everywhere. I can't even imagine what that must have looked like or sounded like. I mean, can you imagine even seeing that cloud of birds? And it had to be a huge cloud coming into the camp. It was like a bird blizzard. I mean, our friends on the West Coast are dealing with six feet of snow, and it's incredible. But man, what craziness there must have been taking place. And I'm going to think that there must have even been some kind of solar eclipse as these birds came to be there in their camp so they could have food. And then what is amazing, as you think about it, is that each family gathered about 10 homers. One homer is about six bushels. Now, that seems like a lot. Now, you multiply that times 600,000 men, and it equals about 6 million homers at a, at a minimum. Now, that's just a lot. Now, again, trying to understand how many birds was that? Well, doing some math here, it probably ranged somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 million quail. That's a lot of bird. So what's amazing, once again, what we see in God's kindness and his generosity is that God doesn't just provide it in a dramatic fashion, that God actually provides it in a, also a dramatic proportion. It's like Jesus in the miracle of Canaan with turning the water into wine. There is this abundance of how God works. Now, there's a reason for that because God's also teaching Israel a lesson. And we have to understand that Moses, for sure, could never have anticipated how he was going to get an answer to his prayer. It was unpredictable and it was unprecedented. But the truth is, Moses had the guts to circle the promise anyway and to say to God, 
I, I'm not sure what's going on here, but you need to show up because I don't know how we're going to feed all these people. And again, for us, it's the model that when we circle the promise, you never know how God's going to provide. But I love what Mark says in the book. He says it's always cloudy with a chance of quail. And maybe that's a mindset he's asking us to have. So again, trying to be really practical as we think about this, as we think about trying to be practical in this series, again, I want to ask you as you're drawing the circle, if you're doing that 40-day challenge with us, as you've read the book, or even if you're pondering this, is, is there a promise that you need to circle? Maybe you need to circle a promise for your marriage, or maybe you just need to circle a promise for your children, or maybe you need to circle a promise for the stage of life that you're in right now. Or maybe you need to circle a promise for a fear that you're pushing through, or that you're facing. Or, or maybe circle a dream that you're chasing and trying to pursue and see how God shows up. Now, what's interesting here in Numbers 11, and again, I would encourage you later today to read it through a couple times and to read it through both in a, a regular translation, but then to, if you can access uh, Peterson's message version. It just is just such a beautiful way of reading this amazing story because so before the quail storm shows up, God stops and poses a question to, to Moses. And to be honest, it's more than a question. It's the question. And I think it's the question we all wrestle with. And the truth is your answer to this question, the question is going to determine the size of your prayer circles. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look here. Then the Lord said to Moses, has my arm lost its power? Now you will see whether or not my word comes true. Or maybe a shortened version of that, maybe a Cliff Notes version, if you will, is this. Is there any limit to my power? The obvious answer to this is no, because we know this much, right? Another big word about who God is, he's omnipotent, which means by definition, there is nothing God cannot do. Yet, for many of us, we pray and act towards our problems as though our problems are bigger than our God. And so I need to remind myself, but I'm also going to remind you, that this should actually fuel our faith. In fact, Mark says it this way in the book, that God is infinitely bigger than your biggest problem or your biggest dream. Let's hear that again. God is infinitely bigger than your biggest problem or your biggest dream. And then when we think about it, not only is that true, but it's also the fact that his grace is infinitely bigger than our greatest sin. And that it has to be an encouraging thought as we struggle here in the season of Lent, of preparing our hearts for the sacrifice that Jesus is going to make on our behalf. Now, the great A.W. Tozer, who has written much for the church, said this, he believed that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, I believe that it is, then our biggest problem, your biggest problem, my biggest problem, isn't an impending divorce or failing business or what the doctor's going to tell us. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not making light of the fact that maybe we have a problem with a relationship or that we're in financial straits or that we're facing a serious health issue. I don't want to minimize any of that, any of the challenges that we might be facing. But I think as we lean into the Circle Maker story and the impact it has for us, 
in order for us to really get the proper perspective on our problems, the godly perspective, each of us have to answer this question. Are your problems bigger than God, or is God bigger than your problem? Again, our friend Tozer wants us to see is that our biggest problem is our small view of God. And that, as he says, that is the cause of all the lesser evils. It's the high view of God, is seeing him as omnipotent and omnipresent and, and always engaged in our lives, that that's the solution to all the other problems we face. Again, God asks Moses, is there a limit to my power? Have you answered that question? So there's only two options, either yes or no. And until you come to the conviction that God's grace and power has no limits, you're going to draw small prayer circles. And then once you lean into a deeper understanding, embracing the God who is omnipotent, you're going to draw circles that are larger, that are going to help you draw them around your God-given and your God-sized dreams. So really the question of today is this idea of how big is your God? Is he big enough to heal your marriage? Is he big enough to heal your child? Is he bigger than a positive MRI or a negative evaluation from the doctor? Is he bigger than your secret sin or your secret dream? Now, it's interesting, and this gives me hope every time I see this in Scripture. Moses wasn't quite sure what to do with this, and he was more than a little perplexed by the promise that God had given him. Think about it. How could God possibly provide meat for a month for 6,000 people? It just didn't add up. But at the critical juncture, when Moses had to decide whether or not to circle the promise, God posed this question. Is there any limit to my power? So again, one of the takeaways from the book, the big idea is that the size of prayers depends on the size of our God. And if God knows no limits, then neither should our prayers. Now also, we need to be reminded that God does exist outside of the four space-time dimensions he created. And we need to pray that way. Mark tells a story in the book. He says this. He says, it reminds me of the man who was sizing up God by asking, God, how long is a million years to you? And God said, well, a million years is like a second. Then the man asked, how much is a million dollars to you? And God said, a million dollars is like a penny. The man smiled and said, could you spare a penny? And God smiled back and said, sure, just wait a second. You see, with God, there is no big or small. There's no easy or difficult. There's no possible or impossible. And that makes it so hard for us to uh, comprehend. It really makes it difficult because all we've ever known are these four dimensions. We're limited, right? Because we were born into this limited world. But you see, God is not subject to the natural laws that he instituted. He has no beginning and no end. He's the alpha and the omega. To the infinite, all finites are equal. So also to say that even our hardest prayers are easy for the omnipotent one to answer because there is no degree of difficulty. It doesn't matter how long or how loud you pray. It basically comes down to your answer to the question, is there any limit to my power? Now, again, one of the things I think I've learned in reading The Circle Maker here for the third time and just walking in the season that I, I find myself personally in, I think we need to embrace this big idea, too, is that when God gives a vision, 
He also makes provision. Now, all of us need the courage to step out in faith when God is calling us to get out of the boat. Otherwise, we will miss the miracle. We have to believe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And if he can send a west wind that brings 150 million quail into the camp, that should speak for itself. But there's also this aspect of all this that we need to do our part. And so our part is the taking a step of faith in searching out that dream that God has put in our hearts. So again, to make it really practical, what step of faith do you need to take? What decision do you need to make? Or what promise do you need to put down and drive a stake in? So what I'd like you to do here in these closing moments, to take a moment and to draw a circle on a piece of paper and write down that thing or a couple of things that you need to circle with prayer. And as we ponder that for a moment here with a quiet interlude, I pray that the Holy Spirit will encourage you in that. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the life you've given us. We're grateful for these moments to be reminded, these great stories of your faithfulness in so many ways. And help us see you as we need to see you, to trust you, to to be able to step out on faith and do the things that we need to do as your people. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that we would see you act in new and fresh ways. And we pray it in your strong name, Jesus. Amen.